We interrupt our normal series on the Called Out Cafe to bring you a special edition. Warning. This episode of the Called Out Cafe podcast may cause you discomfort, Hello? irritation, yeah. and sleeplessness. No, can I call you right back? Please consult your physician if okay. the Called Out Cafe is right for you. Hello, and welcome back to this Called Out Cafe special edition miniseries in which we're debunking the unfortunately resurging flat earth theory. This is part two of the series, and what I'm doing to address the arguments in favor of the Flat Earth Theory is specifically taking on each and every claim made in a popular video titled World Upside Down, Biblical Earth Documentary, 2022. You can find that video on YouTube. If you want to know more about what the Called Out Cafe and Doug Hooley Ministries is about, you can visit my website at DougHooley.com. I am in my third season on the Called Out Cafe, and the current regular series that I'm into right now is titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book by the same title, and that book is available on Amazon.com. If you haven't already listened to episode one of this mini-series, I strongly suggest you do so. You'll see that within the first couple of minutes of the World Upside Down video, if you watch it, you've been lied to through misleading questions. The writers of the script of that video are depending on that no one will think critically about what it is they're being told. They also depend heavily on no one having ever had a class in high school level geography, geometry, or math. They attempt to pit God against science even when science only means understanding God's creation. What they're doing in the video is nothing less than attempting to change the reality of God's creation into something that it's not. Well, let's get back into the content of that video. We left off with the narrator's account of Noah's flood and how it was dependent on a flat earth and an invisible dome that covers it. So next... The narrator then uses what's recorded in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, as another example of the firmament, you know, this solid dome that covers the earth, having a porthole in it. It's the story of the baptism of Jesus. In the story, we read of heaven being opened and a dove descending as well as a voice coming from heaven. This is compared to the windows of heaven being opened and the rain coming down, you know, like literal windows in this dome being opened. The narrator is implying that a hole is created in the firmament, what he calls the second heaven, that gives access to the third heaven. When this porthole is opened in the second heaven, the dome, you can see through that porthole into the third heaven, and things can come out of that porthole. That's apparently not only where the waters above are kept, but also the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and God reside. Well, my first question is, are we still talking about the physical world that was created by God here or the unseen spirit realm, also, of course, created by God? The two are not the same thing. Why would it be necessary for a physical window or a hole to be opened up in the solid dome of the firmament to let a spiritual being into the physical world below? If it was a physical portal that opened, 
Why didn't it start pouring down water through the hole like it did during Noah's flood? Was all the water used up during the flood so there was none left at Jesus' baptism? Did the Holy Spirit become a physical bird on the other side of the dome hatch, which necessitated the hatch being opened? Well, from how high up did this poor bird have to fly down from the undersurface of the dome? We know that there's not enough oxygen to uh, even sustain a bird's life above 37,000 feet. And we know that the highest any military jet has flown is around 85,000 feet, and it didn't crash into any solid dome. Since we're turning this passage into a story about a physical part of creation— in order to prove this dome's existence, these questions need to be considered and answered. Yet, this is God's non-material Holy Spirit, which temporarily took on the physical appearance of a dove. Rather than attempting to manufacture a story about how a spiritual being that appeared as a physical being had to come through a physical hatch of some kind to descend for miles down to Jesus, is it not more likely that the Holy Spirit simply transmutated into bodily form like a dove somewhere in the sky above Jesus? Could the language about the heaven opening mean that the Holy Spirit of God crossed over from the spiritual realm of the third heaven into the physical realm to simply illustrate that a bona fide miracle had taken place and that God directly interacted with humans? Is that not the point of this passage? Does it really need to include the unproven or scripturally unmentioned crystal dome and its hatch? Does not heaven opening in this case simply mean that something was revealed from the spiritual realm of heaven? In the next three examples the narrator uses to try to prove his case, he fails to recognize God's use of visions that are almost commonly found recorded in the Bible. The Bible uses the word vision 87 times in the Old Testament and eight times in the New. It's not necessary for the word vision to be used to identify when someone is having a vision. Such is the case with the first vision the narrator cites, which is the stoning of Stephen, which is recorded in Acts chapter 7. Let me read that to you in part anyway. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, this is Stephen we're talking about, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That was Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56. If this was not a waking vision that Stephen was having in which God was allowing him to see into the spirit realm, if this rather was a physical action, a physical thing that took place, as the narrator of the video is contending, then as Stephen stood on the earth's surface, he would have had to see Jesus who was assumably still the size of a normal human being, standing to the right hand of God from several miles away. I'm not sure how high the bottom of the dome is from the face of the earth, in uh, the narrator's opinion. I know that the video puts forth the idea that space is not real, so the bottom of the dome needs to come before space begins. 62 miles above sea level is where space is conventionally recognized as starting. 
That's too far to recognize anyone, <laughs> even Jesus, as is even a single mile away hard to even tell if what we're looking at is a person without the aid of some magnification device. As a matter of fact, at about 150 feet, accurate facial recognition, as far as testimony in a court of law goes, drops to zero in terms of credibility. Then, if this was a physical thing that took place, that Stephen was really seeing Jesus and he was standing at the right hand of God and he was seeing this through a porthole in the dome, the story reads as though no one else saw what he was describing. Well, how could that be if this physically took place? This is because most visions are given to individuals and not groups. For example, we read of one of the prophet Daniel's visions in Daniel chapter 6. There he says, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Isn't it far more likely that God allowed Stephen to have a vision of the supernatural realm rather than that he was witnessing the physical opening of a solid dome? The Bible is packed full of such supernatural visions. There is no proof of a solid dome. This is documentation of yet another supernatural vision in the Bible. The vision that Stephen had, Stephen, Stephen, you know who I'm talking about. The vision that that guy had is reminiscent of the vision of the Apostle Peter, the one he had, where similar language is used regarding the heavens being opened. You can read of that vision in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 23. And there you're going to see that Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. He then heard a voice, and after this same thing occurred three times, he saw the sheet and its contents taken up at once back to heaven. In verse 17, we read that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Then in verse 19, we read again that Peter was pondering the, quote, vision, unquote. Again, this is the same language regarding seeing heaven opened. The same thing goes for the next example of the, at the narrator cites to try to make his case that a solid dome exists above the earth, separating the sky below from the spiritual dwelling place of God just above it. This time, we're considering the Apostle John's vision found in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And this is what that says. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Well, in Revelation 1.10, we learn that John was, quote, in the Spirit, unquote, when he heard behind him a great voice like a trumpet. Being in the Spirit means that he was meditating or in an altered state of consciousness, where his focus was not on the physical world around him. Seven letters to send to the seven churches in Asia Minor were dictated to John. And then John heard another voice while he remained in the Spirit. This is when he had the vision of the door standing open in heaven. And immediately after he heard the voice, 
he tells us again that he was not experiencing the physical world when he wrote, quote, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, unquote. It's undeniable that John saw a door open in the sky in his vision. Again, if this was a physical door in an invisible physical dome, which is beyond the sky, it would have been several miles away, you know, like maybe over 60 miles away. Even a door the size of the Grand Coulee Dam would have been difficult to see at such a great distance. And can you imagine the water that would have been flooding out of a door that size? Since the purpose of the firmament, after all, according to the video, is to hold the waters above. This would have been the only physical thing that John saw while he was in the Spirit, having his vision. Well, the next example the narrator uses is part of John's vision recorded in Revelation also. This time, though, John sees Jesus transitioning from the, the unseen spirit realm into the physical realm. John again sees heaven opened and Jesus riding out of heaven to make war and judge. The question again is, what does it mean for heaven to be opened? Does it mean that John is in the middle of having a vision of what he could normally not see because it was of the spiritual realm? Or does it mean that a door in the invisible dome you know, a physical real door in the invisible dome was loosed and opened up. By using these visions of things that are shown to people in the physical realm, which come from the spirit realm, it's as though the narrator believes that beings and things that exist in the spirit realm, in, they exist in some sort of ongoing physical form subject to the physical realm while they're in the spirit realm that they're only hidden from us by being on the other side of a physical dome that he calls the firmament. That if the firmament were removed, or if a door in the firmament were always open, then we humans could see into the spirit realm and see the inhabitants of heaven at any time. You know, we'd have to be physically seeing them. Light would have to refract off of them. If we heard them, then sound waves would have to be generated by them and come and strike our ears. Both very physical actions. Well, how contrary this is to what we know about the spirit realm. The spirit realm is invisible. It's made of spirit stuff, <laughs> not physical matter. Jesus informed us that which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Jesus also told us that God is spirit. And we're to understand God in that way, apart from our physical senses. We're surrounded by unseen spiritual beings all the time that we cannot see. For example, we know that Satan is prowling around us all the time. We know that according to Ephesians 6, verse 12, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual beings. We read several stories of demonic possession in the New Testament. These are invisible spirits which temporarily inhabit physical bodies, and when they leave the bodies, they remain invisible. We can read of Elisha praying that the eyes of his servant might be opened so that he might see. And when he did see, he saw the hills full 
of horses and chariots of fire. Spiritual beings in their natural state are not visible to human eyes. They don't require a dome in the firmament to see them. They belong to a different realm of creation, the heavenly realm. To see them, or likenesses of himself, God must grant the vision necessary to see into the spirit realm. The realm the third heaven exists in, that realm is not simply behind a physical door which exists above the sky. If you want to find out a whole lot more about the spirit realm, you can listen to my podcast series on the Called Out Cafe. Uh, I think it's called The Biblical History of the Spirit Realm. There's a lot of information there you might be interested in. Well, Ezekiel had an awesome vision of God's throne room in heaven. The narrator uses verse 26 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel to say that God's throne sits directly above the firmament that he says exists in the form of a dome over the earth. However, carefully reading this passage indicates no such thing. First, remember that this is a vision. It's, you know, it's almost like anything goes in a vision to get God's point across. God is giving a human being a glimpse into the spiritual realm in a way that he'll understand it, not a glimpse into physical reality. What the narrator of the video alleges the firmament to be is a physical structure created on day two of the creation of the earth. Next, remember that the word firmament is not a proper name. It doesn't always have to be referring to the same expanse in the same way. And it does definitely not mean an invisible dome. Ask any Hebrew speaker today what the word for sky is, and they'll tell you that it's rakia. It's the place birds and planes fly and clouds move through. It's everything we see over our heads. And that's the word that the narrator of the video is translating as firmament, meaning to him a crystal dome. It's important to note that Ezekiel is giving a description of four fantastic creatures called cherubim. These cherubim were moving around in the vision. They darted up and down and sideways. Wherever they went, some sort of wheels went with them. It's from above their heads that Ezekiel heard a voice from the sky. Then it's from over their heads also that Ezekiel saw the likeness of a throne. I'm going to ask you to think about angles and distances yet again. If what was taking place was literally occurring in the physical realm, and the firmament is what the video says that it is, then there are many spatial problems to be worked out. For example, if the four living creatures, the cherubim, were close enough to, Dan, to Ezekiel to provide the detailed description that he did, and the firmament is a dome that's miles and miles above the earth, how is he going to see a throne sitting on top of it? A throne and a being that he describes in detail. Why does Ezekiel describe this vision of the expanse that he was glimpsing into, the throne and the one sitting on it, all three of those things, as being over the heads of the cherubim, as though somewhat in front of him and not directly over his own head. The only thing that makes sense 
is that this is yet another vision described in the Bible where anything is possible, where God allows fantastic creatures from a different created realm, space, and time to be glimpsed by a human directly in front of him, like some sort of movie playing out. Ezekiel is viewing all sorts of tremendous things, all from his vantage point along the Kabar Canal. Well, how was that possible? Well, Ezekiel 1 verse 1 gives us the key. It says, quote, The heavens were opened, and he saw visions of God. Unquote. Again, we see this term, heavens opened. Ezekiel was able to see into that which is normally shut to humans, the spirit realm, because he had a vision. Next, the narrator starts in on a series of disjointed arguments, starting with an argument over the use of a geometric term, circle. He says that Isaiah's use of the word circle in Isaiah 40, verse 22, proves that the earth is flat, because the verse says that he, God, sits upon the circle of the earth. And circles are two-dimensional. They're not three-dimensional like a sphere. The narrator says that if God wanted to indicate the earth was round, he would have said that God sits atop a sphere or a ball, like he mentioned a few passages earlier. Okay, if we want to play this game of holding God and the biblical authors accountable for providing scientific details when it's normally never their intention to do so, while we ignore the actual point of the passage and what it's trying to make, does not this passage describe God sitting atop the circle of the earth? So if we're going to play this literal game, <clears throat> not a literal game like the game is real, but <laughs> a game of taking scripture only literally, if God were just sitting on this circle and the circle is the earth, is he not just sitting on the earth itself? The alternative is that he's sitting on the edge of the circle, but then when God looked down, would he not just be looking at the earth's rim? I mean, even the crude drawing that the video uses has God sitting atop a half dome, a half circle, looking down on a flat circle below. Well, sitting miles up in the air is not sitting atop the circle, if we're going to be literal, as the narrator suggests we should be. And if we're going to tell God what words he should have used... Since a circle is a two-dimensional plane, should not God have used the word translated into English as uga, which means disk? A disk, after all, like a flat earth, is three-dimensional. Wouldn't have that been a better word for God to use since we're expecting him to be technically accurate? Then, if we're going to take this passage literally, as if it's providing geometric detail about the earth— Shouldn't we be consistent and take the rest of the passage literally? So, in verses 23 to 24, are we not saying that God plants human princes like one would plant seeds? Then he blows on them and they wither? After all, verses 6 and 7 have already informed us that all flesh is grass. Obviously, since the narrator suggests we take God literally here, humans must be vegetables. Well, I can hear the narrator's logic explaining this. Well, cows eat grass, and we eat cows, so yes, all flesh is made of grass. Okay, but I also eat fish and many other things that don't eat grass. 
Or are we like grasshoppers who live in tents? Isn't that what the rest of verse 22 tells us about the inhabitants of the earth and what they're like? Do you hear how ridiculous I sound? This is the exact kind of logic and scriptural interpretation that the narrator and the writers of this video are using. This passage from Isaiah is packed with symbolic meaning. Verse 22 regarding the circle of the earth is not any different. The word circle is a generalization and not meant to serve as a geography lesson or a geometry lesson in school. The truth is that from any angle as viewed from space, the earth or any other sphere in outer space that we observe from earth does appear to be a circle. A sphere is made up of infinite circles. Likewise, wherever we are, we are surrounded by 360 degrees of circle wherever we are on the earth. Rather than trying to manipulate this passage into a science lesson, should we not be trying to understand what God, through his prophet, was trying to communicate? Well, so the next thing that the narrator points to is found in Revelation chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. He says, This passage is the clearest place in the Bible that shows the relationship between the earth, the firmament, and God's throne. The video tells us that this passage depicts the sky being rolled together, similar to, or like, a scroll being rolled together, and that action allows the inhabitants of the earth to see God sitting above the earth on his throne. You know, the scroll rolling together is like the dome and the firmament is being rolled up or opened up. The video is, of course, referring to this firmament dome being retracted, which would reveal the third heaven, where God dwells on the other side of the dome. In the video, they show something like the superdome, the dome that's over that being opened up, if you've ever seen a picture of that. Well, there are many physical ways for the sky to vanish, as described in Revelation chapter 6. Literal, physical, natural ways. Almost all the phenomenon we read of occurring in the book of Revelation, God is using things found in nature. Earthquakes, volcanoes, asteroids. The most common way the sky disappears is when a storm system moves in and it becomes overcast or foggy. Where I live, the smoke from forest fires in late summer frequently causes the sun to be darkened and the moon to turn blood red. And at times, the sky to disappear altogether which is just nasty to live with, by the way. A far more fantastic way is when something like a volcano blows up and a pyroclastic flow quickly covers the earth and the sky at a speed of around 50 miles per hour. The ash from volcanoes can spread around the entire world. When asteroids rarely hit the earth, they cause debris to fly up into the atmosphere. And earthquakes can cause all sorts of debris to fly into the air as they start fires and buildings tumble to the ground. You remember the images of the Twin Towers coming down in New York City and how the sky disappeared for everybody who was in that area? Think about the effects of a worldwide earthquake as described in the passage in question. It's following the worldwide earthquake that subsequent events occur in the passage, like the sun becomes as black as sackcloth, the moon 
turns like blood, and stars of the sky appear to fall. The sky vanishes. The earthquake is so strong as to move every island and mountain from its place. Surely the sky will disappear behind mass amounts of debris that will have flown up into the atmosphere. Rather than making it so people can see God, it appears that the sky will disappear from view and earth will be shrouded in darkness as a result of the cataclysmic earthquake. As people who are on the earth at that time witness these things, it's not that they're looking at God sitting on his throne from their vantage point on the earth. It's that they recognize that God, the one who is sitting on the throne in heaven, judgment has come, and they're afraid of it. So they attempt to hide, as they would rather die than face his judgment. It's not that they can physically see God and his face. It's that they know that God can see them and what they have done. And so they're crying out, hide us from his face. So there are many problems with taking the approach to interpreting this scripture in the way that the narrator suggests that we do. Again, are we really to believe that a great physical dome spanning thousands of miles of sky is going to be retracted like a dome over a stadium, which will reveal the spiritual realm behind it? A realm that has no physicality so that it can't be seen even if it were revealed. Is the narrator really saying that once that happens, people will see God behind the dome like you see the great Oz behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz? All of that even though God is spirit and not flesh? Will God be giving all the inhabitants of the earth at that time the supernatural ability to peer into the spirit realm? And I thought the purpose of the great dome, again, was to separate the waters from above from the waters below. Isn't that where all this started? So what happens when you remove the firmament? Won't all the waters above come crashing to the earth and cause another great flood? I thought God promised that wasn't going to happen again. Think about what happened when only the windows of heaven were opened. Now the narrator is saying that the entire dome is retracted? Let's move on. The next so-called proof the narrator uses supporting the existence of a great dome over the earth is the story of Elijah being caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. The narrator says that this verse would not make sense if there were an infinite amount of space above us because Elijah would have died from a lack of oxygen if he were not taken up through the firmament dome into the third heaven, where I guess oxygen is plentiful. So, the narrator asks us to believe that God could send down chariots and horses of fire and take Elijah up to heaven, but he didn't have the ability to preserve Elijah's life, short of taking him through a porthole in the great invisible dome? Is the narrator sure there is oxygen on the other side of the dome and where he believes that the third heaven exists? Wouldn't poor Elijah drown there because of the water that's being held up by the dome? <laughs> that's supposed to make sense rather than God miraculously transmutating Elijah into some form that allows him now to live in heaven without having first died. And what about the next one? The narrator makes a quick reference to Jesus being taken up into the clouds upon leaving the earth when he ascended. He says that Jesus was taken up, because that is where heaven is, up. 
I'm not going to give much argument against that. The first two realms of heaven are both up as we stand on the earth. There are many references in the Bible that indicate heaven being in the direction of up. In fact, if something in the universe is not on the surface or below the surface of the earth, the only direction that it can be is up. Now, all of that, considering that heaven is located in the spiritual realm and not in the physical realm. So directions are really irrelevant. However, the narrator is again missing the greater point of Jesus being received into the clouds. First, clouds in ancient culture were associated with God. The Most High God was considered the cloud rider. God was believed to dwell among the clouds by ancient people. Scripture is full of references to God being associated with the clouds. It was no accident that Jesus ascended into the clouds, which would have sent a strong message about who he is. Again, the narrator is missing the point. (laughs) Well, to continue to make the point that heaven is up, the narrator refers to the story of the Tower of Babel found in Genesis chapter 11. Again, I have no problem with thinking of heaven in the direction of up because that doesn't mean it sits behind a dome of some sort. What I will comment here on, though, is that the Hebrew word translated as heaven in this passage can also mean the sky. Today, we have many skyscrapers in large cities. If the narrator is saying that it was the intention to build a tower up into the third heaven where God dwells, then the narrator is relying on the misconceptions of ancient man to make his point, and not on spiritual truth. The Bible records many wrong behaviors of ancient people. Trying to build a tower to heaven is just one more of those wrong behaviors. Trying to prove that heaven is up based on the misconceptions of ancient people, proves nothing. Ancient people also believed that menstruating women could drive dogs crazy and kill swarms of bees, that redheads would turn into vampires after death, and that our eyes send out beams of light, and that evil lurks in Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Next, we get a break from misinterpreting scripture for a minute. When the narrator makes another half-true observation... (laughs) When he asks another inaccurately leading question, here's that question, quote, Why don't rockets fly straight up? Unquote. He says, quote, again, they fly horizontal to the ground, unquote, and then answers his own question, of course. If rockets flew straight up, then, quote, they would crash into an enormous ceiling, unquote. Well, it is true that after rockets initially take off, they perform what's called a pitch-over maneuver. They're still rapidly climbing. They are going up very rapidly from the earth and not flying parallel to its surface. This maneuver is performed so the rocket won't run out of fuel before it achieves orbit around the earth. When rockets fly straight up, they're pulling against the full force of gravity and it takes more fuel. When they fly at an angle, the use of fuel is way less. However, until they reach orbit, They never fly completely horizontally. They are not flying parallel to the Earth. That is a lie. For rockets that ultimately want to end up in orbit around the Earth, rather than going on to some kind of outer space mission, it's their goal 
to end up flying parallel to the ground as they continue to circle a very round earth. Now, moving on to the next thing the narrator apparently does not understand and so fills in his lack of understanding with a false assumption. He asks the question, quote, Why don't satellite dishes track across the sky if satellites are orbiting us? Unquote. He says that's because there really is no such things as satellites in the sky. The satellite dishes are really only receiving signals from radio towers located a few miles away. Well, the over million people that work in the $386 billion space technology industry would differ with the narrator of this video. What a conspiracy that would be. By the end of 2021, 4,852 satellites circled the Earth. Can you imagine how hard it would be to get a million people to keep the secret that the satellites that provide so much of the technological capabilities we never had before satellites were uh, in the sky, all of that were some kind of a great hoax? To replace what satellites do for us, there would need to be a grid of radio towers covering the entire face of the Earth, only a few miles apart. These towers would need to span every desert, every mountain range. I know we all see microwave towers and cell phone towers here and there, but the towers that the narrator alleges exist would have to number in the millions to provide the GPS or global positioning signals that we'd have to have to, and they'd have to span the oceans, both north and south and east and west. Every ocean would have to be blanketed with these radio towers as ships require receiving signals from them. Yet, there is no evidence of anything like that. I can hear the narrator saying, well, they're hidden towers. Oh my gosh. The reason we don't see satellite dishes tracking satellites across the sky is because many satellites like the ones that provide television signals, for example, are in geosynchronous orbit around the Earth. That means they're orbiting the Earth in the same direction the Earth is rotating at a rate fast enough to keep up perfectly with the spin of the Earth so that they hold a constant relative position above the Earth. Yes, other satellites are stationary in space. That makes them appear to move across the nighttime sky as the Earth rotates beneath them. You, if you stare at the sky long enough at night, on a clear night, you're going to see these little dots that just go in a perfect track across the sky. Little teeny lights. Those are satellites you're looking at. And they're, they're not actually moving. Well, some are, but most are not. The Earth is rotating underneath these satellites when you're looking at them. And yet, there are other satellites that have the capability of moving around up there. And the military uses these types of satellites to spy on foreign nations. So, his question, the narrator's question, is either based on complete ignorance or the assumption that the viewers are ignorant about how satellites work. His answer to his own question is just wrong. It's deceptive. It's a lie. Taking a simple class on how radios and radio frequencies work would clear up the matter for him. Now, at about a little over 24 minutes into the video, 
The narrator informs his viewers that there is no such thing as space. Outer space does not exist. This is because above us is only the sky and the firmament dome, and above that is the third heaven where God's throne is. There is no place for outer space. Besides his simple yet very flawed logic, the narrator offers absolutely no proof of this. No direct scriptural proof, no physical proof, no challenges to what we can plainly see with our own eyes. No explanation how the hundreds of thousands of people involved in the space exploration industry could possibly be pulling off one of the greatest hoaxes ever, and no one is coming forward to expose it. Nothing. I won't say no one. You always have outliers in every field. There's always people. When you have millions of people, somebody's going to come and make some false claims. Now, that's not always based on blatant dishonesty. Sometimes it's because they've had limited information that they've been able to be exposed to, and they really think they're telling the truth. But uh, when you take the totality of all of the evidence and the information that's available out there, and you got a couple outliers, essentially all that does is it discredits the outliers. As of November 2021... Over 600 human beings have traveled to outer space. You don't even need to go to space, though, (laughs) to know how vast it is. Have you ever stood under the stars at night and you see the depth of it? It's not a two-dimensional thing pasted on a dome over our heads. You can estimate the distance of the moon from the earth. Anyone can do this. And you can even do the same thing with a the sun and the stars by using a thing called triangulation and parallax. Humans have been using these methods since the second century BC. The burden remains on the narrator to prove that something so obvious and easily provable does not exist. The narrator has to make such an absurd claim because that's what supports his other absurd claim that there is a dome that covers the earth. The lie must get bigger and bigger. Well, considering his claim that there is no such thing as outer space, the narrator asks the question, where then are the sun, moon, and stars? He, of course, answers his own question in chapter 4 of the video titled, The Night's Lights. He starts out that chapter making a great case for the awesomeness of God. The universe is unfathomably enormous. What kind of a being could create such a thing simply by speaking what he had in mind into existence? However, the narrator then tells us how literally the entire universe is a fake. It's a facade like a Hollywood movie set. A relatively thin veneer over the undersurface of the firmament dome that is, quote, much, much closer, unquote, to us than we think. At this point, he speaks of the firmament dome as fact. Literally, everything in the universe must now fit the dome model he relies on, but is nowhere near proven from Scripture, either directly or indirectly, and has been disproven through experimentation and observation for hundreds of years by followers of Christ and non-Christians alike. 
This is a classic case of someone previously establishing a definition of something and then citing it later as fact, even when it is completely false. Here the narrator cites the great physical barrier of the giant crystal dome called the firmament as fact. He is now building more on this non-fact, this lie. As proof, you know, in air quotes, proof, the narrator claims that stars are much smaller than what science says they are. He says one way to prove this is that the Bible says stars actually fall to the earth. If they were billions of miles away, how could that happen? He cites Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, and Revelation chapter 6, verse 13. And he says, small stars falling to the earth is only possible because the stars are small objects which are lodged in the firmament. Today, of course, we know that what the Bible is referring to are meteoroids. When they hit the earth, they're called meteorites. They are not distant stars, like our sun is a star. But in our common tongue, we still call them falling stars. Actual stars, like our sun, through nuclear fusion, create their own heat and light. Meteors that fall to the earth appear as stars streaking across the sky as they become superheated from the friction as they enter the earth's atmosphere. No one has ever seen an actual star that is stationary in the sky that we can all look up at suddenly become dislodged and streak <laughs> to the earth and crash into the earth. We only see meteors after they become superheated. It's estimated about 17 meteors hits the earth's surface every day. You can think of meteors as just space rocks. They can be as small as dust, but some which have struck the earth have been as large as cars. None of the vast numbers of meteors that have struck the earth that have been examined have ever shown potential for ever generating any light of their own. From our perspective on the earth, we see more falling stars when we go through what I call dirty spots <laughs> in the universe. As the earth makes its way around the sun each year, we predictably go through the same dirty spots, <laughs> which result in annual meteor showers. Based on scripture, it appears that we'll be going through an especially dirty spot in the universe just prior to the return of Jesus, when meteors appear to fall to the earth like figs from a tree in a strong wind. The Greek word translated as star in the New Testament is aster. We get our word asteroid from it. It's used in the New Testament in several places. Besides normal stars in outer space, the word refers to what may be an asteroid in Revelation chapter 8, verse 11, called wormwood. Also, a possible comet in Matthew chapter 2 that the wise men were following to find the newborn Messiah, and meteors which will appear to fall from the sky at the return of Jesus. Getting back to the uh, how we measure the distance away from the earth it is to the sun and the moon and the stars, there is no mysterious science behind it. It's as simple as understanding a triangle. Now, anyone who's taken a high school geometry class or above can understand how this works. Using the moon as an example, you take measurement at the Earth's surface of the angle of the moon above you. 
So like using a level, you use something like a protractor to measure the angle that the moon is above you. Now, at the same time, you know, a predetermined time, someone else takes the same measurement from a long distance away on the Earth's surface. And knowing the distance between the two people measuring the angle, we know how long one leg of this triangle is. The point that the other two legs of the triangle meet, according to these angle measurements that you've taken, that's where the moon is. So you compute the distance that's using the angles that were measured. Triangulation is used all the time to navigate on land, sea, and air. You can do the same thing with the sun. And using the same principles, you can even measure the distance to the stars. Now, if the moon and sun were as close as the video says they are, as they rotated through our sky every day, they would start out very small as they approached in the distant sky, and they would continue to grow larger and larger until they were as close to our position as they were ever going to be. Then, as they moved off every day, they would grow smaller and smaller until they vanished, never vanishing over a distant horizon, but just getting teeny to the point where we couldn't see them anymore, and they kind of went around the corner. <laughs> this is just like any object that, as it comes closer to us, it takes up more of our field of vision, and the further away it is, the smaller it appears to be. But because the moon and the sun are such great distances away from us, they don't appear to change in size in the sky. If we had a flat earth and the sun and moon moved about the sky around us, that's how it should be. They should get bigger and smaller throughout the sky. Instead, we see the sun maintain its size throughout the day and then go down over the horizon that the narrator says doesn't exist. Well, what about the Star of Bethlehem? The narrator cites the Star of Bethlehem as proof of the firmament dome, that it contains the stars we see in the sky, and so the stars are much closer than scientists think. He said what occurred was only possible because of the stars, the Bethlehem star, its close proximity to the earth, so the stars have to be contained in a dome. I agree that the Star of Bethlehem must have been close to the earth, but Given the characteristics of the star, it must have appeared to the wise men to be even closer than what the video represents the firmament to be. Whereas this star was initially visible from where the wise man's journey began, probably in Persia in the east, in the end, this star came to rest over the very house that Jesus was in. Somewhere in the middle of following this star... The star must have disappeared for a time, since they had to stop off in Jerusalem and ask King Herod and his wise men for directions to try to pick up the, the trail of the star. Well, the characteristics of this star are not explainable by anything in nature, whether the narrator's firmament dome or anything else we know about astronomy. This was most likely a supernatural event. You know, the Bible does talk about things like that. It, and the Bible does not indicate anything other than a supernatural event. What happened with the star was as natural as myriads of angels showing up in a field near Bethlehem and telling the shepherds that the Messiah had been born, and they would find him lying in a manger. 
There are no natural explanations of this. If if you can imagine, you know, the star came to rest over the house that Jesus was in. Well, what if the wise men would have passed by the star? If they were to look back, the star would have been still hovering over the place where Jesus was. That had to be very low to identify the specific house that Jesus was in. Anyway, moving on. That was a supernatural event in summary. I got to take a breath here. (laughs) Because the narrator tells us next that the moon is not solid and that it is a source of light rather than a reflector of the sun's light. He says, quote, We are told it, the moon, is solid. The Bible tells us it's something totally different, unquote. What does the Bible tell us, according to the narrator? That the moon is a light of its own. He bases this on Mark 13, 24, which says, The moon shall not give its light. I have to wonder if the narrator believes it's just a giant, ongoing, constant coincidence that the phases of the moon line up exactly with the earth casting its shadow on the moon as the sun is on the other side of the earth. And when the sun's light is not obstructed by the earth, the moon appears to be full. Is it just a coincidence when there's a lunar eclipse that the entire moon is dark? Saying the moon gives light was and is just a common way of communicating. Should, I mean, if we're supposed to move towards technically always being correct, you know, uh, scientifically, technically being correct when we speak. Should those of us that believe the moon is merely reflecting the sun's light start a campaign to abolish the term moonlight because that's not an accurate statement? Should the lyrics that are currently by the light of the silvery moon be changed to by the light of the silvery reflection of the sun's light off the moon? Or can we just understand what the term moonlight commonly means. And when we say the moon is really bright tonight, most of the world recognizes that it's not really the light generated from the moon that is bright, but the sun's light that is being reflected off the surface of the moon. The narrator says that the moon will be as bright as the sun if it were reflecting the sun's light. And he uses 1 Corinthians 15, 41 as justification for making this claim. That verse says, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Again, the narrator makes a naive and untrue fabricated statement. The moon is is not efficient at reflecting the sun's light. It only reflects about 7 to 12.5% of the sun's light, depending on the region of the moon that you're focused on. The moon's surface is not a mirror, and it's far from smooth and polished. It's not even entirely white. Even if the moon were silver and polished smooth, since it's a sphere... The light that hits the moon is reflected out in every direction and not directly at the earth. As one author put it, if a 2,160-mile-wide flat mirror were placed on the moon, covering the entire moon's surface, and it were to redirect sunlight towards us on earth, then 
the moon would look as bright as the sun, but nothing short of that. But we don't stop with the outlandish false claims about the moon here. The video says that the moon is partially see-through. The narrator asks this question, quote, Have you ever noticed you can see the sky through the moon sometimes? Unquote. He says, again, quote, This is because the moon is not a solid object. Unquote. He offers absolutely no proof supporting this claim. Nor does he offer any answer about if the moon isn't a solid object, what kind of object is it? Is it gas? Is it a shape-shifting piece of cheese? <laughs> he also says the moon shines fully sometimes and partially other times. He's saying rather than the earth is casting its shadow on the moon, that the moon is partially see-through and follows a regular monthly see-through cycle. Say that ten times fast. Of course, those who believe in a flat earth believe the moon landing was a hoax. All the conspiracy theories that pertain to a faked moon landing have been soundly debunked many times. And the amount of people it would take to pull off a fake moon landing would be staggering. The odds of keeping it a secret are incalculable. And yet people who believe it was faked persist in their beliefs. I have to say this at this point. For people who are in touch with reality, the phenomenon, the physical things in the scriptures that the narrator talks about, and his explanation for those things, sound increasingly made up by someone who's intentionally trying to see what he can get away with and get people to believe. It's like he's daring people to believe these things. The moon is see-through and not a solid object. It's really close to the earth, and it's on a circular cycle above the earth in the firmament. It generates its own light like the sun. All of these things are so false and so easily disproven and have been disproven many times over. What else could possibly be wrong with the narrator's claims? Well, how about saying that gravity does not exist? The narrator says if gravity did exist, then birds could not fly and people would be cemented to the ground. This just sounds again like the narrator just doesn't understand how gravity works. More than that, it sounds like the narrator is trying to redefine what he believes the characteristics of gravity would be if he would have been God and created the earth. The short answer, back to the narrator answering his claims that people would be stuck to the ground and birds couldn't fly, is that that's not how God created gravity to act in creation. He made gravity to be relative to the size of the planet an object is on or around close to. On the earth, there's just enough gravity which allows us to lift our legs in the air. If you're in super good shape, maybe you can even temporarily sail into the air like Michael Jordan for a couple seconds. God made gravity on the planet earth such that because of the principles of flight, that birds are able to overcome gravity and soar high into earth's atmosphere. However, if a bird were to retract its wings, thereby no longer creating a lower pressure above the wing than below it, which is what allows it to stay aloft, the bird will plummet to the earth because of gravity. 
The narrator offers an alternative to gravity. He says that it is density that caused things to be held to the ground. He says things will continue to sink until they encounter something denser than themselves. The narrator here is making a partially true statement. For example, oil does float on top of water. There's a relationship between density and gravity. Gravity has a stronger effect on objects with greater density. If an object had no density, gravity would have no effect on that object. That object would not fall to the earth. But if there were no gravity, objects would not sink to the ground regardless of their density. Gravity is the force God created that pulls things that have density in a particular direction. Density has to do with weight, but it doesn't explain why objects fall towards the earth. The narrator fails to explain why objects always fall downward to the earth rather than fall up. Why don't denser objects fall up or sideways? Why is it always towards the earth? What's the underlying force in play? What is the force that God created that causes objects to move or be pulled in the direction of objects of great size like planets? Well, it's called gravity. Of course, the narrator conveniently does not believe that outer space exists, but gravity as a force is easily proven as astronauts have traveled to outer space. As they, and the objects that they take with them, leave the area influenced by Earth's gravity, they become weightless regardless of their density. Well, let's talk about tides now. There's no such thing as gravity, according to the video. So the narrator offers magnetism as the explanation for what causes tides. Well, here's how it works, in his opinion. He says the sun and moon act as a battery in the sky. The sun carries a positive charge and the moon a negative charge. As those two celestial bodies rotate around the flat surface of the earth, the sun repels the water at low tide because of its magnetism, and the moon attracts the water at high tide. It was Sir Isaac Newton that first explained that it was the gravitational pull of the sun and moon that caused the earth's ocean to rise and fall. But as we've seen, the makers of this pro-flat-earth video reject conventional science and have replaced it in favor of their own version of science, which above all prioritizes disagreeing with conventional science. That's what it seems to all be about, even when it means embracing the absurd. The sun does in fact have a strong and complex magnetic field. It sends out electromagnetic flares that hit the Earth, which not only cause the aurora borealis, but can knock out satellites and interfere with other electronics on the Earth. The moon has no magnetic field like the Earth and the sun do. Although its dark side contains negatively charged electrons and the daylight side, the side which faces the Earth, is positively charged as the sunlight knocks negatively charged electrons off the surface of the moon. There is no evidence or even speculation amongst conventional scientists that it's the magnetic polarities of either the sun or moon that control the tides on the earth. The narrator has offered no proof to the contrary. He's just making a statement. His only motivation 
is that gravity does not fit his model since it's not a part of the model in which the Earth is a round object and orbits the sun while the moon orbits the Earth. These are all like answers that they had to come up with after the fact to support a flat Earth. Well, since we're dealing with the moon, I think it's a good place to leave off with this lunacy at this point. Next time, we'll start talking about the hundreds of thousands of images that have been taken of the Earth from outer space and what their answer about all of that is. Until then, please watch out for deception. May God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.